Well, once again, it's good to be with you. Thank you for your kindness. I, I was well, well greeted this morning before, between Sunday school and worship, and afterwards, I was, uh, I was just sharing with your pastor earlier before we came in this evening. What a blessing that is, and he knows that. Uh, I travel a lot. Uh, I used to travel more when I was when I was uh, teaching full time, but I still am blessed uh, by the session and congregation at Covenant to let me go uh, a lot, and uh, and so I do. And uh, I can tell you that there are churches that that men and women can walk into in the morning, in the evening, and walk out, and unless they initiate a hello or a greeting, they might most likely not be greeted, and that just ought not to be, uh, and you're not like that, and I, uh, I appreciate it, I commend you for that, encourage you, continue that. I, uh, I also was listening as I drove down Friday afternoon to a podcast that had been sent to me by a friend, Ben Shaw, Dr. Ben Shaw, down at Reformation Bible College. It was a, a podcast about, uh, about it, the title of it was, uh, uh, Do the Does the Younger Generation Appreciate Good Old Music? Now, this is not going where you think it is. And uh, this is a gentleman who does a who does a uh, a podcast. It's on YouTube. It's uh, it's actually a video, but I was just listening. Promise, wasn't watching. And uh, he had a young lady, an English lady, who's a musician there, and she has her own podcast. And so they were teaming up to talk about a particular song from the 1970s. It was called "Operator" by Jim Croce. And they were just talking about. The, the masterful lyrics of that song, and in that song, one of the one of the lines is, "Some of you, I, I can tell, you're old enough to remember the song." Uh, is uh, operator, can you help me make this call? And then he comes back after he gets the number from the operator. He says, uh, 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 "Can you give me the number again? I've, I've, I can't read the number that you've just given." There's something in my eyes. You know it happens every time. And then they stopped it and said, and this young girl said, you know what strikes me is Jim Croce was a man's man. Said, I've read about him. And you look at him and he's like a people's, he's the people's poet. And yet he was talking about crying. Something in my eye. You know it happens every time. And uh, see, I told you, you didn't know where it was going. You thought I was going to talk about the hymns and psalms you're singing. Well, I don't have to. Those are great. You're supposed to be doing that. But aren't you glad you have an elder that can weep in the pulpit in a prayer? Y'all are blessed. Let's uh, read God's Word. Second Samuel chapter 9. This was my daddy's favorite passage of Scripture in the Bible. 
<clears throat> without apology. And uh, for years and years, I didn't understand why. But God. And this is a marvelous passage. It's not, it's not just beautiful story, but it's beautiful theology. As I tell the folks at Covenant all the time, when you read the Old Testament narratives, the Old Testament history, remember the theology. The theology is in the story. The theology, the redemptive story is weaved through all the Bible. It's been called the, 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 the scarlet thread. It's been called, you know, the gospel throughout the Bible. It's, it's been called all sorts of things. The redemptive story is just, it's, it's just weaved through everything in the Bible, this passage particularly. Follow along as I read God's inerrant word. Then David said, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet any one of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he, Mephibosheth, prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's Sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. 
grass withers and the flower fades. But again, I'd remind you that the word of our God endures forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, God in heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. Thank you for painting such beautiful pictures in the history of your people that we might not only know the doctrine, but we might see the doctrine fleshed out, applied so beautifully. And we pray that you bless us now, that you would warm our hearts, that you would illumine our minds, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glorious words of life that are here in this text. This we ask in the marvelous name of the King of Kings, the King of the Church, our Savior Jesus. Amen. <coughs> well, I was uh, pleased to hear that you're having a joint Reformation service. We tried to do that uh, about every other year. We've tried it annually, but we find ourselves worshiping alone about every other year. So we've kind of decided, okay, well, we'll just make it every other year since since it seems like that's as often as some of our sister churches want to do this. I also uh, smiled. I don't know if your pastor saw. He, he glanced at me when he said that Dr. Davis was going to be preaching for you. If you've never heard Ralph Davis preach, that's as good a reason as any to go to the service next week. <clears throat> you will be blessed, and you may even be shocked a time or two. If you've not heard him and seen him, you won't understand that until it happens next Sunday night. He lives about an hour uh, to the west of me. Uh, he fills the pulpit for me occasionally. We're friends. I, I get to eat lunch with him, uh, oh, a couple, couple of times a year. And uh, he's a good brother. You'll enjoy him. Well, let's get to this text. It is something of a text that reflects largely the Reformation. That's why I brought up that service and the, the date we're coming to, October 31st. You know that's Reformation Day, not Halloween. And everybody, okay. And, <clears throat> and so uh, uh, we're having a picnic next uh, Saturday, or this Saturday actually, this coming Saturday, on the grounds at Covenant to celebrate the Reformation, and uh, we're doing a bunch of brats. That sounds appropriate, doesn't it? Martin Luther, the German, brats, all those kind of good things. There'll be sauerkraut, and, uh, and then for the children, we'll do hot dogs so they won't, they won't waste the good brats. <laughs> but the Reformation was about a number of things, restoring you know, the Reformation was really a renaissance. It was in the Renaissance period, as we think historically, but it was a renaissance of, of doctrine that had largely been covered up by the, all, all the ex, extraneous add-ons of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Re Reformation was about rediscovering those things. In the medieval fathers, yeah. In the early church fathers, yes, of course, but more particularly in the scriptures. They went back to the original source. 
And there they found that they weren't worshiping the right way. So Calvin wrote his wonderful little treatise on worship. He considered it to be the most important thing he did. Luther rediscovered the priesthood of all believers as one of his primary contributions. We usually just think of sola fide, you know, faith alone and Christ alone from Luther. But no, priesthood of believers was, was his, his big thing. Church governance. They went back to the Bible and they said, well, wait a minute, this, this Episcopalian thing, this top-down hierarchical imposition of men on churches, that's, that's not biblical. And they discovered Presbyterianism. And you get to Calvin. But perhaps of a more eternal significance was the doctrine of salvation. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's all of grace, through faith, in Christ, alone. And there's probably not a single passage in the whole of the Bible that sets all of that out better than this one. And so it's good to rehearse it. It's a wonderful Reformation uh, time sermon. Let's look at it. First thing I want us to see is the, is the story. It's a story of the covenant. It has its, its foundation in a covenant. It's interesting, too, to look at the context. This is, if you backed up to chapter 8 and began in verse 15, it says, So David reigned over all Israel and administered justice and righteousness for all his people. And this is, this is one of the ways that he's going to administer justice and righteousness to the people. Is by keeping a covenant. Now, it's obvious, if you're reading closely, that it's a covenant context because he uses the word covenant, faithfulness, three times. Verse 1, Is there not anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Verse 3, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? In verse 7, he says, I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. That's that little word that I can't say because we don't have the throat fixed for it that other, other languages do. It's, it's something that comes out of here and gets real nasty. If I try to say it, I might spray you. I'm not going to. So I'll just tone it down to hesed. The covenant faithfulness of God. It's translated variously when you come into English translations. Kindness here in the New American Standard that I'm reading. Steadfast love in other translations. The loving kindness of God in other translations. Regardless, it's the, it's the same point. He says, there's not someone of the house of Saul to whom I can show covenant faithfulness for the sake of Jonathan. Now this goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. You remember when Saul was, was, was acting crazy and doing crazy things and he was after David and Jonathan, Saul's son, befriended David. 
And in the course of that friendship, they cut a covenant. They made a covenant. They made an agreement. And that agreement was a life or death agreement that had stipulations and promises. You can go back and you can read about it in chapter 20. Here's just a part of what they said. And we read in verse 42 of chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, Then Jonathan said to David, this after they'd been talking about this bond that they were entering into, Go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose, he departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Right there. In a nutshell, is the covenant. The binding together. Listen, folks, this covenant is patterned after that which God has sworn to His people. You can find it back in, in its embryonic form statement in Genesis, in the garden, after Adam has sinned with Eve, and God comes to them in the cool of the day and He enters into a covenant with them. You find it in Noah, chapter 6 of Genesis through 9. With Abraham, Genesis 15, and then the language of the covenant is fleshed out in chapter 17. We find it with Moses. We find it again with David and ultimately with our Savior Jesus Christ. So this eternal covenant that God has made with His people. Remember Ephesians 2? Chapter 1, that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We've been predestined to adoption as sons. That is exactly what God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit bound themselves to do. John, Cal John Calvin called the covenant the binding of God. That was his language, the binding of God. You see, you and I can't bind God, but God can bind Himself. And He bound Himself to act this way. And He tells us over and over in the Bible that I'm going to be your God and you'll be my people. And that always is true. Because he made a covenant. He bound himself to be our God. And he bound himself to make us his people. That's the context. That's what we see here. Even in this simple man-to-man -man covenant, David and Jonathan, we find in God. And so it shouldn't surprise us that all the effects of a covenant are on display here in this passage. So David had made a covenant with Jonathan. And now we see after many years that that covenant's being kept. Let me just stop and say something here. This passage should give you great hope. Did you hear what I said a moment ago? After several years, many years, David is keeping the covenant that he had made many years before. 
We're a fast food consumer driven people, aren't we? We want it now. For you parents who may have covenant children who have wandered from the faith, who grew up under the covenant sign, they're still under the covenant sign. Because that baptism was not initiated by man, that baptism was initiated by God. Some of you had, have siblings who may have, who have wandered from the faith, disowned the church, but they were covenant children. There is no time limit on God's covenant faithfulness. We can still have hope. We can still pray believing that the Lord can honor His covenant and keep His covenant and bring those wandering covenant children, covenant parents, covenant siblings to Himself. Can't we? He is a God. You say, but why would God wait so long? I have a brother that's old in life and maybe even dying. Thomas Goodwin, one of those grand Puritans, an independent, he just didn't get his church governance right, but that's okay. He got everything else pretty much right. But in his work of the Holy Spirit, he answers that question. Because here's how we think. We pray this way. Some of you children sitting here, I'm sure your pastors present and past and your parents prayed from the time you were conceived in your mother's womb. Lord, do for them what you did for Jeremiah, for John the Baptist. In the womb, regenerate. You can save them even now so that they'll never know a day when they didn't love you and serve you. Right? How many I could ask and parents would raise their hand. That's the right prayer to pray, by the way, covenant parents. So the question arises, wouldn't it bring God more glory to save children in the womb or early in life and they could live a whole long life serving the Lord, bringing Him glory? And Goodwin says, that's the way we think. That's obviously not the way God thinks. And he says this, what if he waits until a man is in his latter days, 70s, 80s, reaching the time of death, and God reaches down and saves him? When he is old and can contribute nothing, when it becomes obvious that nothing he's done brought favor from God. He's lived a life of rebellion, hostility, alienation, hatred toward God, and yet God saved him. What could bring, Goodwin says, what could bring more glory to God than saving a sinner who so obvious to the world is a sinner? Because here's how the world out there thinks. That little child that trusted the Lord, well, so sweet. No sin. You know, they're not weighted down with sin like old people are. But we know that God saves young ones, middlers, old ones, 
the same way. The same sovereign grace. So don't forget that. This is a story about the covenant. Our lives is a covenant story. That's the context. Who's the object? Who was the object? Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Now remember the historical context real quickly. I have to move quickly here. Mephibosheth was... Yeah, my southern tongue doesn't move very quickly, but I'll do my best. Remember the historical political context. It's a context that's not unlike some parts of the world today. Mephibosheth was the rightful heir to the throne. Saul. Remember, David is put into the line by God. But Saul was the king. So Jonathan would have been the next in line, but Jonathan's dead. So the grandson of Saul would be next in line. There's been many bloodbaths fought in periods like this and still, as I said, in parts of the world today over the throne. You see, here's the point. Mephibosheth was an enemy of David's because of the throne. He was the rightful heir. It belonged to him according to the law of the land. So David would have been an enemy of Mephibosheth's because Mephibosheth was an enemy of David's. Whoever came on the throne, if they were able to get in, wedge into the throne, then they had to take care. And you read this in the Old Testament, don't you? They have to go and take care of all the descendants of that other lineage so that they don't have the competition. That's who the object of the covenant is. And notice how else he's described here. He's not just a hostile enemy to the throne, but he's lame. Don't you love the way... I, I, three times, he's lame in both feet. We would, we would say he's disabled. Now, if you want to know how terribly disabled he really was, keep reading. Read on through the Absalomic period when Absalom is rebelling and you're going to find Ziba lying to David later on. And then when David gets back to Jerusalem, he's going to find Mephibosheth and Mephibosheth is there. His fingernails have grown out. His toenails have grown out. His hair has grown out. He's not been able to care for himself because he's been deserted by Ziba who was supposed to be taking care of him. That's how disabled he was. They emphasize it here with the lame in both feet, but it, it seems that he may have been more disabled than that. You can go back earlier in 2 Samuel and you'll find why. He was dropped by the maid. I forgot to tell you. Did you notice? There's another something that's a little flag about the covenant here. And Mephibosheth had a son whose name was Micah. You got this covenant to the children and the children's children and right on down. It's just, it keeps going, keeps coming out of this passage. So Mephibosheth is crippled. And what that means is that, first of all, he's no concern to you, David, either positively or negatively. He's no threat to you. 
That's Ziba's mind thinking because he knows what's going, what, what could be going on here. Notice too how Mephibosheth describes himself. First, he describes himself as a slave. I am your slave. And then he comes back and he says, he says, I'm a dead dog. Now this dog thing all through the Bible just tells us that we're unworthy. But Mephibosheth understands compared to the king, he is not only a dog, he's a dead dog. But folks, let me ask you something. Do you see yourself in Mephibosheth? Do you? Because listen, that's how God sees sinners. They're dead dogs. They're no threat. They're worthless. Even though they're hostile toward Him, they're not a threat. They're worthless. They're dead dogs. But aren't you glad that God covenanted in eternity to bring dead dogs to Himself and give them life and give them all the blessings of the covenant? Because see, if He didn't, we wouldn't. If God had not bound Himself, and then by binding Himself, He carries out what He promised, and if He were not carrying out what He promised, there'd be no hope for us. We'd be like Mephibosheth, left on our own, and we can, again, read about that later on in the book. But God... And that brings us to the third point, the benefits of the covenant. And these unfold so beautifully. Let's just look at, look at the scripture here. The king said, is there anyone? Ziba says, there is. He's crippled, both feet. Not a problem for you, king. No threat. The king says, where is he? Ziba tells him where he is. And the king, notice what he does. The king sent and brought him to himself. Is that not a beautiful picture of the effectual calling of God? Do you understand? As dead dogs, hostile to God, enemies of God, we don't have ears to hear. We've got the external call here and the internal call all wrapped up together. David sent and brought him. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the Father and the Son sending the Spirit to bring us to Christ? Is it not? Spectacular. Or as Joe Fowler would say, wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? We're dead dogs. We can't go to David, but David can come and get us. We can't go to God. We're lost sinners, but He can come and get us. And He does with His Spirit. And He applies the, all that's been accomplished in the covenant work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so He sent and He brought him to Himself. He sent and brought him from the house of Machir. Mephibosheth came 
and notice what happens, what the effect of that is. Mephibosheth, you just get the picture here. You remember some of those old movies where uh, a dignitary or someone's being brought in on a litter? We see the same picture in the gospel where the friends brought the friend who was disabled to Jesus on a litter. You've seen it in the movies. You know, it's a flat, cot-like thing. Got handle up front, handle over here, hand, two handles back there, and people are bringing it on their shoulder, and someone's sitting or lying on the... And that's, that would have been the picture here. Mephibosheth, crippled, can't do, can't walk, can't hop, skip, or jump, and they brought him on the litter, and Mephibosheth fall, literally falls out of it, off of it, before the Lord, King David. What a scene. The humility. That's what God's call produces in us. When God calls us to Himself, it doesn't produce pride. You hear people say, oh, you Calvinists, you be proud people. No, we're dead dogs. We have crippled feet. We brought to Jesus on a litter and we fall off in humility, prostrating ourselves before Him, not puffing our chest out at Him. David said Mephibosheth, and then he describes himself, here I am, I'm your servant. And then notice what comes next. After he's been brought to him, all that the Father brings to me, I'll lose none. He's been brought to him. He's trembling. He knows legally he's a threat. He knows legally he's an enemy. He knows legally he deserves death. He falls off. He says, I'm your servant. And notice what David says, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. That's the doctrine we'll wrap up to here. Reconciliation, justification. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And right there, David, in those simple words, do not fear, announces the reconciliation. That's the same as saying not guilty. Don't fear, Mephibosheth. I have nothing against you. Why? Because, Mephibosheth, you're a wonderful being. You've got strong legs. You're able to do for me. No, because of the covenant. Because of your father, Jonathan cause of the covenant that I made with Jonathan don't fear and Jonathan 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 is still there and he says and there's more by the way not only don't fear you're reconciled we're fine no problem I'm going to restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly Guess what? We just moved from the legal declaration, justification, reconciliation to family. The doctrine of adoption. You're going to eat at my table regularly. I think it's the new uh, the uh, ESV, it may be the NIV, that translates regularly as continually. And that's really better. That gives you, you can, you can eat regularly. Like, right? like I could eat regularly with the Fowlers once a week. That'd be regular. 
But the idea here is continually. Breakfast, snack. Dinner, snack. Supper, bedtime snack. That's the image. Did you notice everything's yours? Go read our little chapter in the Westminster Confession on the doctrine of adoption. Do you, do you ponder this much? Romans chapter 8. We have been made heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. What does Jesus have? Say it. Everything. It's all His. It's all ours in Christ Jesus. And this is so beautiful. He tells Zeba, okay, Zeba, I've given him everything. Go take care of it. Bring in the harvest. Oh, by the way, he doesn't need any of it because he's going to be at my house eating at my table every day, all the time. Isn't that just like a... We get everything and God takes care of us. We don't need half of what he's given us. He gives us way more than we deserve and He gives us may, way more than we can use. That's how generous our God is, our covenant faithful God is. So we've got legal declaration of, of peace, justification, legal declaration of sonship, adoption. And then we've got a promise of moral commitment to His Son. That's sanctification. We just shifted from the legal to the moral. I am going to have you come to the table all the time. What did David just do? He just committed to bring Mephibosheth to the table over and over and over and over again. Remember, he's lame in both feet. The last thing we read about him in this passage is once again, see, health, wealth, prosperity. God didn't justify him, adopt him, and heal him. Nobody slapped him on the forehead. Nobody rubbed sacred oil on his feet and made him whole. He's still lame. That means every morning they had to go get him up, take him to the table, go back to his room, back out to the patio, come to the snack, come to the lunch, out again, back again, over and over and over. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what the Spirit of the living God does for us over and over and over. Aren't you glad? Because we're all sinners and we sin over and over. And He comes and He gets us and He brings us back over and over and over. That's sanctification. And all the time we're being nourished. We're being fed. We're being nourished. We're growing. We're growing. We're growing. The reformer, Martin Luther, had his fears of death and the devil. If you've read any biographies on him, you know that. And he had those fears overcome with words like that. Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness. You read the life of Calvin. He was a sickly man. And he had his struggles with, with anger but he had his anger dealt with over and over and over again by God because God bound himself to Calvin to do that. No matter what your besetting sin is, no matter what 
your condition is with your children or your siblings or your parents or grandparents, the faithfulness of God is what we hang on to. That's our hope. And His faithfulness is bound up in the covenant. We can be sure of it. Did you notice again the last thing here? I just love it. You know, you know, we've got that simple statement of justification. We've got that, we've got that over and over statement of adoption and sanctification. Because three times we're told that he's going to eat at the table. And one of those times is added, like one of my sons. In other words, this is not going to change. I'm unchanging. I want to be faithful to you, Mephibosheth. I will never ever be your enemy. I will always care for you to the end. If you go and read, you'll see that he renews this covenant with Mephibosheth after Absalom's rebellion. And Absalom ate at his table continually. No, by the way, so did his son. Every sinner receives the same fullness of salvation as Mephibosheth did. Here's the beautiful thing is, we understand it far more than Mephibosheth did because we live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of the resurrection. We live on this side of the Holy Spirit coming in fullness. That's the reason we can look at this passage and say, what a beautiful passage. What a beautiful passage of the covenant faithfulness of God. What a beautiful passage of the salvation that God issues as it flows out of that covenant promise. Because we live where we live. And the Spirit has guided us into truth and we can see these things clearly where a person who's not in Christ can read this and it's just a beautiful story. But when you and I read it, it's soul-warming theology. Aren't you glad? Now, a question. Do you understand that you, you're Mephibosheth? It doesn't matter which stage of life, does it? Mephibosheth, before he's reconciled, Mephibosheth in the middle of it, or Mephibosheth at the end. We're still lame in our feet. We still need the grace of God every moment of every day. And the covenant assures us that it's there. Let's pray. We're thankful, Lord, that your salvation is not for special people but it's for sinners like us. Sinners like Mephibosheth. And we ask that you would cause us to revel in that tonight. If there's any here, may they see themselves as Mephibosheth, lost, unable to do for themselves. But better yet, may they, may they see themselves as the objects of your grace. Justified, adopted, and growing in grace because of the grace of God.
And we pray this in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.